Welcome to Multinew Media for the week of April 6, 2015. Today, Chase Raz and Chris Woodward have some fun trying a new top 5 segment. They will be discussing their top 5 technology memories. Enjoy the show and the nostalgia. With me today is Christopher Woodward. Christopher, how are you? I'm doing good, Chase. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Um, uh, any any exciting news recently? No, I'm just I'm ready to go in the way back machine today. And, awesome. Uh, and, and pull out some tech from the past. Great. So uh, let me say hello to our audience as well. Uh, today we're going to be trying a new top five segment where Christopher and I both bring five responses to the table relating to one central idea. And that idea, for this episode of the show at least, is technology memories. And uh, we'll be listing our top five technology memories in ascending, descending, or absolutely no order at all. Now, the question that you, our wonderful listener, should be asking right now is, what does this have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything. First of all, who doesn't love a top five list? Second, when we walk through our answers, I imagine we'll encounter some themes along the way. Now, I haven't reviewed Christopher's answers, and he hasn't reviewed mine, but I'm willing to bet that we'll have some common points to the themes that we make. As technology experts, new media content producers, social representatives of your company, marketers, or whatever other hat you may wear, we all stand to learn a lot from some introspection. Each day, we're professionally tasked with reaching out and connecting. It is critical to connect with each other to advance the cause, so to speak, or to connect with our customers to keep the operation solvent. What makes people think of you? What makes people remember you? What makes people want to consistently run the interactions they had with you through their minds over and over again? That's what we're exploring today. What makes memories stick? So let's go with that topic. Christopher, I'm looking forward to uh, the top five list that you have, and as eager as I am to get into mine, why don't I give the floor to you first, and um, you can kick this uh, whole process off. Well, you know what? I'm going to start off with a, a technology memory that most people probably wouldn't think, oh, technology. Uh, they would think impact. Uh, and it's something rather unusual. I'm going to go from the middle of my list, uh, and I'm going to go back to 1992. And in 1992, I was watching the Oscar Awards, uh, as many people do, and Billy Crystal was the host. One of the bits that Billy Crystal did on the Oscars that year was um, when they took a scene from an old Laurel and Hardy movie called Way Out West, and Billy Crystal was superimposed into the scene so Crystal could theoretically dance with Laurel and Hardy in this scene. Now, that kind of technology of, of superimposing a character into a, you know, a piece of classic film footage is something that's been done a million times since then. Obviously, if you've ever seen the movie Forrest Gump, uh, you know how successful it is. And obviously, computer-generated images uh, make it even easier. Uh, but in 1992... This wasn't something you saw, you know, on a regular basis. So it was kind of a radical bit of technology. And 
you know, in my, my mind from an entertainment standpoint, I thought the, the potential for this, you could have, you know, a, a person in, again, 1992 inserted into a piece of film from the 1930s, the 1920s. You could, you know, bring, so to speak, actors back to life. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, some commercial companies decided to, uh, have a little bit of uh, too much leeway with this. We ended up with, I think, John Wayne in a beer commercial at one point. Um, but I just thought the actual technology of being able to take a piece of film, a piece of celluloid, uh, which you would think, okay, it's shot, once it's done, that's it. You can't alter it any further. The idea that you could combine that with a modern piece of footage or put the two together, uh, it just opened up the doors for, I think, a lot of what we see now in entertainment with computer-generated gener images, what we see with films being pieced together, backgrounds, blue screens, all of that. You look at the early 90s, it was really kind of a revolutionary period for this technology. However, I should point out that in researching for this show, that 1992 bit that Billy Crystal did with Laurel and Hardy, I actually discovered that Billy Crystal stole that bit, believe it or not. Wow. It actually, that same scene, Laurel and Hardy, way out west, was used in 1979 in a bit on a very short-lived variety show being hosted by Mary Tyler Moore, in hmm. which Mary Tyler Moore was superimposed into the scene to dance with Laurel and Hardy. Now, in 1979, this was done by basically taking two separate pieces of film and matting one film over the other. Right, how, like how they did an animation for decades. Yes, but if you ever seen Tom and Jerry with uh, Gene Kelly back in the old yeah. MGM films, um, so it wasn't obviously computer generated images or matched up the way the Crystal piece was in 1992, but it actually was innovated in 1979, celluloid to celluloid. So, again, a, a rather unusual moment in some ways when talking about tech, uh, but I think something that really opened the doors to the way technology is being used in entertainment today, where if you can dream it, if you can think it up. It can happen. Uh, that one's pretty, you know, I like that one because it's a technology that we've seen um, th that connects with other technologies and it's come and gone several times, like you mentioned in the 70s and back with old animation. Um, and, and now we're seeing it again with holograms. Yeah, we even have that live vibe now, which, again, you look at some of the, uh, you know, Michael Jackson uh, on a Grammy Award show. Uh, you know, the Tupac at Coachella a few years back, uh, the Black Eyed Peas having two members on stage as holograms, two members live. Uh, again, you're right. It's that next stage. It's not only being able to alter reality, so to speak, on video or film and video. Now it's altering your reality in person. Right. I'm going to go for my first one about 10 years prior. And I'm going to introduce this next one with a sound and maybe just for good measure one more Christopher let me ask you do you know what those sounds are you know I'm taken way way back to I think my cousin's house and my earliest exposure to uh, certain games. <laughs> certain games. Yeah, that's the sound of the GCE Vectrix. Uh, the Vectrix was an early video game console. Uh, again, it was released in 1982 originally, but um, 
a couple different companies got their name on it after a while, and I don't remember who those companies are, but the idea of the Vectrex was it aimed to bring, uh, you know, arcade-style gaming into, into homes. Like, in, in the early 80s, most of the arcade cabinets out there, you know, if you were popping quarters and, and playing video games, most of those arcade cabinets were still using vector graphics. And there was this perceived quality of, if I'm going to play a real arcade game, it can't be those raster graphics that, that you know, those little 8-bit uh, Atari things. And it was this idea to bring premium in of vector graphics. And by the way, it was the only system to ever um, use vector graphics, the only uh, home-based arcade system. And uh, it had a couple notable firsts. It was the first to have um, 3D vision add-ons, and it was one of the devices in the time when, when everybody used that tall portrait uh, layout of the screen. But one thing that was really unique is, unlike Atari or any of those others, it had a, this device, the, the Vectrix, had a really sleek designed case, and the controller would fold up into it, and it looked like a mini arcade cabinet just sitting right on your tabletop. But for, for me, the memories I have of this as being a, as being a little kid and when you when you flick the thing on, you know, you turn the switch on, you hear the hum of the electronics inside, and you hear the hum of the um, the CRT drawing with light the um, the actual vector graphics, the three note introduction that I played earlier, and the the feel of the joystick and the four buttons. It was perfect for for you know little kid '80s hands because you could in the left hand you have the little joystick, and in the right hand you have a button for each finger. But um. You know, it was sad. I, I, we, we had one of these in, in my family, and, and the secret is, I, I don't tell many people this, but now the whole world can know, I actually still own a Vectrix. Um, I take really horrible care of it. It's in storage at the moment, and I'm, I'm thinking about going and pulling it out, because when I, when I picked uh, five t- technologies from the past, this was the first thing that came to mind. We only ever owned one game for it. It was Mindstorm. It's a little uh, Asteroids game. That came with it, and uh, you know that's where I thought I wanted to start. So let's let's pause and, and compare our uh, our our first two. So we have the introduction of people into movies and scenes from the past, and and uh, a video game console. I think we're on a good start. What do you think? You know, it's interesting. You mentioned Vetrex, and, and do you remember uh, the Vetrex light pen? I do. I never owned the light pen, but I do remember it. It was an add-on that allowed you to, to basically, and there was, I guess, an art program, but you could draw on the screen, which yeah. obviously, you know, again, you look at technology now and things like like a, a Samsung Galaxy Note with its, you know, stylus, and you can write right on the phone and whatnot. So it's interesting how some technologies from then kind of went dormant and then are back again now. A, a little-known fact about Vetrex, um, originally... I believe Vectrex, the the concept was presented to Kenner Toys, and this would have been, I guess, 1980 or 1979, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And Kenner Toys um, had just come off, or, or, or I should say, was enjoying tremendous success because they essentially had lucked out into being the Star Wars toy license. Uh, no one else w- was picking up on, on the Star Wars toy license in the 70s. Kenner was willing to put out a, a modest line of action figures, which, of course, became huge. Right. Made millions of dollars for the company. And 
the idea of Vectrex was brought to Kenner Toys at, at the peak of their earning power, uh, and they opted not to put any money into it, not to develop it, totally passed on the project. Yeah, it, you know, it never really picked up very well, and I think it was for that lack of big support. It eventually got some people on board later down the road, but, you know, Kenner would have been would have been a great um, uh, connection. Now, I've admitted I actually own a Vectrex. Um, it's hidden away in storage. Do you have any of those uh, old Kenner Star Wars uh, figurines? I don't, and it really upsets me. Um, I, I mean, I have some of the more modern. I'm a big Star Wars fan. I have some of the more modern toys and whatnot. Um, I wish I had kept them. If I had kept them even in, in, in beaten up, played with condition, I probably would be a very wealthy man right now given yeah. the collection that I had back then. That's so disappointing because, and here's why. Right, nothing. Let me be self-centric. Nothing to do with you. I would have bet money that you would have had some of those. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that I made such a bad bet in my own head. So I owe myself money at the moment. I, I could have swore you, you, if anybody I knew and owned any of those, I, I would have uh, pegged you. Now that said, uh, my, my, my mother is currently in the process of selling my childhood home. So there is a possibility that a box could be uncovered. So it could happen. Well, you know what? When uh, when the next time you uh, you Skype in is from a yacht, we'll uh, we'll know that that happened, and uh, and I'll raise a glass to you. Mine will be empty. Yours will be full of champagne. There you go. I'll be like uh, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd at the end of Trading Places, feeling yeah. good. I'm <laughs> feeling good. Um, you know, I think we have a good start going. Uh, should we should we alternate back and forth? You want to take uh, your second? Yeah, I think I, that that's probably the best way to go. So since I. I started in the middle of my list. Maybe I'll go to the bottom of my list now. Okay, no particular oh. order. No order here. This is I'm going back uh, to 1987, approximately, here. Uh, the memory is fuzzy on these things sometimes. Uh, in 1987, uh, my father, who worked for AT&T, brought home my very first personal computer. It was oh. the AT&T PC6300 which was actually an Olivetti M24, but the AT&T version of that. Um, now, you have to understand, personal computers back then, uh, you know, the idea of compatibility between systems was quite the issue. Um, the AT&T personal computer, 6300, was uh, a big advantage over the popular IBM PC and others because it had better compatibility with different programs that were coming out. Now, I, I should point out, this is an archaic machine by today's standard. This was a you know, 16-bit processor, 8 megahertz, you know. Um, it did have pretty good resolution graphics for the time. Um, it was, you know, again, a Stone Age computer now. But the interesting thing about it was uh, it had a full-height, uh, five-and-a-quarter-inch hard disk drive. Mm -hmm. um, and it had the ability to uh, have an expansion slot to put in different size drives, which would allow you to use other software uh, being put out there at the time. Uh, again, an archaic computer, but for a kid in 1987, the idea of not having to use an electric typewriter right. to do papers for school, the idea of being able to edit my, my written work on a computer screen and then print it up as opposed to using... Uh, whiteout. Yeah, that it, that like damn that. eraser tape or whatever the white tape that you had Horrible. to use. Yeah, so so just being able to write papers. Now on top of that, 
uh, again, and, and I think there's a, a great commercial out there for maybe it was the Atari. What was that commercial with William Shatner? Where we would talk about how it's so much more than just games, but then go into talking all about the games. Oh, I I wish I could remember. You and I, I used to watch that video. I don't remember what that was for. Was it for I think, Atari? I think it was Atari. It was, it was so much more than games. But let's be honest. When you got a computer, you were playing games. I remember playing Executive Suite and Operation Wolf. And, and there was a boxing simulator, if you will, where all the boxers looked exactly the same. They just had a different name on the bottom of the screen. Computer of the night. Oh, sorry, I was just pulling that up. It, it wasn't Atari. It was for the Commodore. The Commodore. Yeah. Ah, yes. Well, and that was the other thing. In 1987, in the late 80s, there were two kinds of computers. There were people that had an IBM, or in my case, the AT&T, and then there were people that had a Commodore 64 plugged into their TV. So I was in the, the more technologically advanced group, having an actual PC. But uh, again... My, my first personal computer is 6300. I remember sitting there. Wasn't that the one that ran on Unix? It did run on Unix. That, see, because AT&T owned their own, um, their own distribution of, of Unix. That AT&T was heavily banking on that as being uh, part of the future. And they, they touted that as the, you know, the computer with the future built in or something like that. There was a lot of issues with AT&T and Unix and their PCs. Uh, and uh, honestly, I do think a lot of what happened both good and bad with it with their computer division is what led to to the push where where Bob Allen wanted to uh, separate AT&T and eventually it did separate it to into Lucent and Verizon and whatnot but uh but anyway the memory itself you know the 6300 having a personal computer I remember sitting spending hours doing things on this computer and again remember no modem although you could get a modem attachment for it no internet this is just me exploring the possibilities of a computer while listening to music, and this will, again, you know, date the, uh, the memory here, listening to music on my cassette player mm -hmm. while using my personal computer. That is, uh, that's an, an image that I'll never be able to get out of my head. I didn't tell you what I was listening to. So. <laughs> uh, no, just, just the, uh, you know, the kid Christopher, rock, I can see your head. Just, I, I know it's got to be hard, hard rock, right? It's got to be 80s rock. Oh, it, well, you know what? It was 80s rock, but the, there is my my unrequited love of uh, of 80s Debbie Gibson tunes, too, oh, to consider. No. So. Well, I was thinking hair bands. Debbie Gibson does not have the type of hair I'm talking about. <laughs> um, yeah, no no crazy hair bands? Just, uh... Back, back then, it was, uh... Let's see, what, I, would, I was listening to some Bon Jovi back then. Bon okay. Jovi was, uh, was quite big at that point. So. Oh, I am so tempted to push the play button on this Commodore VIC-20 commercial. Well, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's listen. Why buy just a video game from Atari or Intellivision? Invest in the wonder computer of the 1980s for under $300. Oh, it's so hard. I'm going to stop it. It's so hard to hear. William Shatner, invest in the wonder computer under $300. But but that part was crystal clear. Under $300. Right, so. under $300. Yeah, if, if anyone's interested in it, the, the quality's really low. You can find dozens of these things on YouTube or... Uh, wherever else it's uh just look up the commodore vic 20 uh and type william shatner after that and you'll you'll get exactly what we're talking about and it you know it's not just for games but it's great for games too you it's, know as long as we're doing plugs at this point i should also mention oh what uh, it's a plug for commodore because you mentioned <laughs> vectrex i have to mention there's a site out there called vectrexmuseum.com i love that site uh, how, how, if you want to know what we're talking about with vectrex and see some of the the games Go check out that website. Highly entertaining. And and if you follow the links there, you will come to realize what I realized about 10 years ago. 
and this is still true today, there are hobbyists that make their own cartridges and still create games uh, for the Vectrex to this day. And there is a very small online um, uh, trading environment for these types of games. It's, it's kind of dying down, but it's, it's still there. It's fantastic. That, just that that exists is fantastic. I think I'm going to springboard off of yours for my second one. I'm going to move to the bottom of my list as well. Um, you, you just set this up so perfectly. So uh, one of the items I came up with, uh, we'll call it my second, is the smell of the computer room. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of my top five tech memories, and I'm not kidding, and, and it is incorporating all the senses here. The smell of the computer room at, at school. Now, that sounds disgusting, but... You have to remember what was happening in the 80s and 90s. Um, I'm, I'm really talking about late 80s here, to be honest with you, but let's include the 80s and 90s together. Um, schools across the United States and across the world were taking old, beaten-up, nasty rooms and completely renovating them and putting thousands of dollars of computing equipment in them. And when you as a student got to finally walk back in that room, it's like, you know, why doesn't the rest of the school look like this, right? You know, and instead of um, spit wads and gumballs and everything else, it's these beautiful, pristine, uh, I, I now they look hokey, uh, computers. And there were some I really wanted to point out. My, my personal experience with this goes, first and foremost, with the 1986 Apple II GS computer, the Apple II model GS, uh, that was the first time I ever used uh, an Apple device, and it was running System Software 7. And I think that's where I first realized, you know, I, I think these computers and I are going to get along. Uh, the next example where I really had some type of connection with a computer was this for the same reason, walking into a computer lab at school. But this time we had we had gone forward in time a little bit, and they were these all-white Zenith data system computers that were running Windows and DOS. I don't know, Windows 2.0 or 3.1 or uh, 3.1 if you're really lucky and if we were far enough ahead in time by that point. I, I don't know if we were. I just remember these Zenith data systems computers. And then, you know, oddly enough, after that, right, walking into a new computer lab, the last experience I had, and this is late middle school, uh, in which computer labs were some unique thing, right, and not just uh, more common or or not a big push in schools anymore uh, as as families started to buy computers. But the last one, the last computer lab I ever walked into in K through 12 um, and thought anything big of it, I actually went to an older device. It was a room full of IBM PC AT models. So the original IBM PC. And if you remember, those keyboards, they clicked and clacked every which way. So imagine having a, a, a typing class in a room with IBM PCs and those old mechanical keyboards, and the whole room was just so loud. But still, the smell of the computers even years later, you they got that plasticky electronic smell that was so common in these devices, even in cassette players in the 80s. And about the same time I was using that IBM PC AT model, I got an old secondhand XT model to use at home. And that transition happened for me as well. If the computer smelled exactly like they do in the, the lab, you know, when you turn it on and it heats up, it gets that funky electronic overheating smell, um, the, the, the plastic casing. It's so weird, but um, you have to think of it this way. 
Imagine the new car smell for a moment. And no one in their mind went, huh, that's strange. Now imagine back in the 80s, a room full of brand new computers and being a young uh, a tech nerd who didn't know you were a tech nerd yet. And that's definitely one of my top five. You know, it's just, it's funny. And, and obviously, I'm sure everybody had a chuckle when you said the smell of the computer lab. Uh, not to get all... <laughs> Myself you know, as well. Not to get all Mr. Wizard on everybody here, but obviously, you know, the olfactory bulb is part of your brain. And there is definitely a close link between smell and memory. Smells trigger memories. Uh, it's been, you know, proven in research many times. You know, people smell suntan lotion. It makes them think of, you know, going to the beach and things like that. So, you know, it's not actually that crazy that, you know, the smell of the computer room is what sets off the memory in your head. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I thought long and hard before putting that one on there. I thought, you know, it, had we talked and, and said, you know, oh, one of my top memories of being a kid is the smell of the locker room, I think, you know, we, we may want to find some type of nice mental health institution to take care of me, but... But uh, no, there is a distinct smell, and it was, as I recall, a very clean smell. I can I can remember it, right? Everybody knows if you if you have a an, uh, a sense of smell, uh, smell is one of those things you can remember very well, um, uh, unless you think about it too much. And so when I first started typing about that, just trying to jot it down and remember it, those smells came back to me, and it was like, yeah, no, I definitely want to go with this option. So thanks for not picking on me too much. I do appreciate that. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be nice. So if um, if you have those Star Wars Star Wars toys and you get a promotion to the yacht, I mean, do or will you at least pull me in a raft behind the yacht? I'll get you a little diggy. Okay. Yeah, we, we'll go through the Mediterranean. I'll be on a raft in the back like, uh, he's drinking champagne, I have water. So if we, if we connect our next two, our, our last two choices, they both really revolve around our introduction of personal computers. Mm-hmm. So, so again, we're finding like a little, you know, symmetry here despite the fact that we did not talk at all prior to recording about what was on our list yeah and and so when we talk about yours it was the experience of being given something uh, would you say that the computer when when your dad brought the computer home was it out of uh, out of your expectation did you expect for a computer to be brought home that day um i i knew it was coming i didn't quite know what it was going to be able to do right you know, it was more just a it's got to be better than this electric typewriter. That was really my only thought at the time was, it's got to be better than an electric typewriter. Everything else was a, a pleasant surprise. So there's that expectation, and I think my smell, um, the olfactory sense um, comment, is really on the same level because when you're in school, you know, your teacher tells you, hey, we're going to the computer lab. I mean, I'm sure this doesn't happen anymore. I don't know. But um, the teacher says, we're going to the computer lab, and you go, well, I, what are we going to do? I mean, what's... What is this thing? And, and um, you know, are we just going to go play Oregon Trail again or do we do something different this grade? And the, that first smell hitting you of a brand new computer out of the box. I, so I think there's a little bit of an element of expectation there, of curiosity, of wonder. And so then that is good. We found some synergy. So now, uh, should, would you like to take the next stab or should we keep going with me first on this? Yeah, no, let's keep going. We, we can mix it up if, uh, if we need to, but I, I think we have a good order going. All right, so I'm going to jump now. This is uh, the most recent item on my list. Uh, but by most recent, I'm still going back to 2001 for this. Okay. Uh, it, it's an unusual moment uh, in some ways. In 2001, I was in Tokyo, Japan. And I was staying at uh, a, a hotel that 
did not have the best phone service, uh, did not certainly have any opportunity for me to actually be able to plug in a laptop uh, and go online. I have to pause you. You were in Tokyo in 2001 with a bad phone connection and bad internet. Were you staying in the slums? Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> I wanted and, to clarify you know what, I, that. Here, here's the situation. I was going to be in Tokyo for two weeks, ah. so I, I was going really cheap on my lodgings. This, this wasn't five-star then? This was not even a .5 star. Ooh, okay. I'll put I'm it this way. I, I won't tell you the, the name of the hotel, but I'll tell you the initials, uh -huh. which were YMCA. <laughs> um, but I did have my own room, which was in, in my own Western bathroom and shower. So that, that was the important thing about it. You need that yacht now. You earned that yacht. So it's 2001. I, I, again, my, my lodgings are not uh, technologi technologically advanced at all. Um, I went to a phone booth outside, right outside actually the hotel, there was a phone booth. And I stood in this phone booth and there was a, a, a port on the phone, on the payphone, and I was able to plug my laptop into this port on the payphone, and I was able to pull up Skype, and I was able to have a conversation uh, with uh, a girl I was dating at the time back in the US. And it dawned on me at that moment it is, you know, again, this is 2001, so keep that in mind. 2001, I am in a phone booth in Tokyo with a laptop plugged into a payphone, and I'm having a video chat with someone in North America. And the idea that, you know, obviously video chat had existed for quite some time at this point, but it was still in 2001 something you thought of with, you know, uh, boardrooms of major corporations. You know, the idea that I was in a phone booth having a video chat with someone on the other side of the world through a laptop plugged into a payphone. It just, it hit me as one of those moments with, wow, technology's amazing. Is it? Now obviously today, cell phones and technology, you can have video chat while, while, while walking down the street. You don't even need to be in the phone booth, if you can even find a phone booth anymore. But in 2001, it was just something about this memory of being in a phone booth, laptop, plugged into a payphone, video chatting with somebody on the other side of the planet that I just found fascinating. You realized the future had arrived. Yeah, I, I was living the future in many ways. That hotel wasn't, but I was. Had, had you know, someone from Japan, you know, um, 10 years in the future of that teleported back, they would have uh, looked at you funny and said, why is your cell phone so big? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's one of those, again, it's just one of those moments where, you know, it, it was being able to use technology with the situation I was in. You know, obviously I was not in, in the best of, of situations to, to do that video chat. I mean, a phone booth. But there was just something about it. The fact that here I am, I'm literally standing, you know, in the street in Tokyo doing a video chat. So uh, in 2001, again, in those conditions with that setup, uh, I think it's just a reminder of, you know, communications, no matter how primitive they can be sometimes uh, around the world and how much that's changed. And like, obviously, if we go back to the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the, you know, you go back through the years of communication, that's one thing that technology has constantly done for us is it's improved our ability to communicate around the world. And it has. And I'm, I'm going to be able to springboard off of this one as well. We have quite a lot of synergy. Now, I'll be able to springboard in two areas. One, you mentioned a girl you were dating. Uh, now, you're, you're, you're married now, and, and that's a long distance to memory. Um, but you also mentioned communications. So my item on the list that would correspond with this, or at least my item on my list, is my first month 
on the World Wide Web. Okay, so maybe that's a little bit broad scope for top five memories. So let me explain what I mean by that. Because you went on and you spent a whole month and never logged off? <laughs> no, no. Remember, those were the days in which you got billed by the hour. So uh, there, there was no unlimited uh, plan, or at least that I was aware of. And, uh, you know, I don't think I don't think the family had decided on a second phone line by that point. And this is dial-up. So, um, yeah, no, it wasn't it wasn't very frequent. But you know what I remember are our chat rooms and connecting with people. And I, I think I was a, either a preteen or a teen at that time. So somewhere in that transition um, into becoming a teenager and getting to meet people who were outside of my normal sphere of influence, or actually the sphere of influence on me, right? When you're that age, who, who are we kidding? Most of the influence is coming in on you rather than outward. Um, but being able to chat with people and, and meet new people and, and taking a look, uh, there were so many university sites at the time, and university students would ha run their own web pages and have all of these intellectual uh, discussions. And when they weren't being intellectual, they'd post jokes or pictures of, um, I have to be crude here and say pictures of hot chicks, right? Remember, uh, we were talking about a college age, uh, early to mid-1990s demographic. And so it was, it was amazing to me, though, that here's this environment where I can talk to people and have more friends now than I've actually ever met, um, other than just in conversation through text or, or you know, really no audio or video conversations and just pure text. And I don't know why, but for some reason, uh, late last year, I went through a phase of being so extremely nostalgic for that point in time of being able to pop into a chat room and just meet these amazingly interesting people that I was actually looking for chat room experiences and, you know, and, and I realized that those things don't exist in the same way. You get the typical um, chat room audience and, and it's it's fine if you're in chat rooms, right? Um, I don't mean like chat rooms for shows like this and where people come together and talk about maybe, you know, a corporate um, environment. Everybody knows the types of chat rooms I'm talking about. The general uh, nobody knows anybody and we're not here to talk about anything and, and how those conversations erode quickly. But yeah, just this nostalgia that I carry for the early days of the World Wide Web. Um, I've finally gotten over most of that nostalgia. I mean, it's not like some glorified point in the past that we have to get back to. But that really, the, that first month on the World Wide Web didn't just shape my life. It it radically changed what the shape of my life was already becoming into something else. Now, see, I'm going to piggyback right on that because the one item on my list, the number one item on my list, actually, if we were going to do this in, in countdown mode, uh, was from 1994, my own first experiences with the World Wide Web, uh, which was in college. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the browsers were still very primitive compared to what we have now. But this idea of, you know, you had the news groups, you had these web pages um, at college, uh, I could go to the computer center and I could use uh, unlimited time on the web. At home, I had Lucky. AOL, like, like, like so many people, I had AOL, and I did, I do remember having the hourly rate mm -hmm. and, and making sure that, you know, oh, I, I only want to stay on for so long because, you know, it's an hourly rate, hourly rate. Um, but when I was in college, uh, when I used their computer center, 
Uh, the idea that I had this unlimited time, I didn't have to look at the clock and, oh, I better not download this picture because, you know, it's going to take so long on my whatever it was, 14 or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Your 14, was, 4, 28, 8, 36, 6. Horrible. Remember when you would get 36 circs and you get all excited? Like, yes. I was excited as hell for 36, 6. And I should point out that I ended up working, you know, doing web pages and doing stuff on location where I was literally running a a hundred foot phone cord to a jack somewhere mm-hmm. and trying to connect and, and hoping to get, you know, 20, 20, 14, you know, it's like, that was a gift sometimes. Um, but this idea of having the information at your fingertips. And I remember one of the first experiences I had, I, I went on a browser and, and I think it was like InfoSeek or something like that. I forget which it was, but I remember looking up lyrics to songs um, you know, uh, I think it was a lot of Def Leppard lyrics at the mm-hmm. time. Um, but then I remember printing them out as, as, as if, you know, like, <laughs> like this, this World Wide Web, it's not going to last. I'll never have access to this again. I have to print it and save it. I need to print this out. And I, I printed out stacks of song lyrics and, and just crazy information thinking because, you know, this web thing, they're going to shut it down. They're going to, you know, make you pay for everything. They're going to do something. This isn't going to last. So, um, but eventually I got over that, obviously, moment and realized, no, this is going to stay. And uh, just that whole idea of having information at your fingertips. And in a way, um, the growth of the web it almost made me feel antiquated because I was always that you know, king of meaningless knowledge. I was that go-to person that you know, my aunt or my uncles or my, my cousins or somebody would call up and go, hey, do you remember all the members of the Beach Boys through the years? You know, and, and trivia questions and things like that. You know, oh, ask Christopher. He knows the answer to that. Um, I was no longer needed because people can now look it up on the search engine. <laughs> uh, kind of gave me a lot of free time, I think. But uh, again, just you know, I'm piggybacking off yours. That first experience with the World Wide Web, I think anyone uh, of, of my generation, your generation, probably uh, a few generations even younger than us, their first time having that access and knowing that all of this information is available to you. Uh, it was just phenomenal. I mean, the days of walking to the library and using microfiche were over. Yeah, you know, I feel bad. You said that was your number one, and I feel bad for taking it. But you have a, you have another point here. Of, uh, you know, I look at my nephews who are who are um, both very very young still. Um, they, um, you know, if I were to say something about, oh, the first time I encountered the web, they just look at me funny, like what it's always been there for them. Um, you know, you, you know how kids are these days, addictions to YouTube, right? Kids that never even bother to watch TV because, you know, just give me the tablet or the phone. But there is something so concrete about that first experience. But I, I do feel bad about stealing your number one. I didn't intend to do that. It's okay because, you know, again, it, it tied right in. It would have been silly for me to ignore it and then go back to it later. So. Well, we have, um, uh, let's see, you have, what, one or two left now that I stole I, that I, one. I have one more on my list, and you should have two more on yours. Uh, right. So let me – you know what? I'll do my big one now, and then we'll finish with – because I, I, I actually like the one that's um, not the big one as well very much. Obviously, I love all five of these. You like all five of yours. Uh, so I'm going to go to the one that I probably put as the biggest, most sentimental, um, but it's also a very broad topic. I think you'll understand what I mean when I say this. But so many of our listeners will will just scratch their heads and go, what is this crazy guy talking about? So here it is. Uh, I'll, I'll introduce it. I'll see what your response is, and then I'll explain. So one of my top five technology memories of all time is 
Walt Disney World as a kid in the 1980s? I absolutely get it. <laughs> I'm I, holding I, my I, breath I, over I, here. As, as a Disney junkie, um, I absolutely, I think I absolutely get where you're going with this. And, and please, by all means, expound on this because people that may think that sounds insane, explain Disney in, in, in the 80s to them. Well, you know, and first of all, the 80s are the point of conversation we have to start with because I, I thought, you know, I, I listen to people's Disney shows. I'm familiar with the Disney shows that are out there and the websites, and I'm talking about third-party independent folks. And, you know, I, I, my wife and I are annual pass holders. We bump into some of these people from time to time, but it's not like I'm obsessed. So there's something very clear about the 80s. Um, no other... Decade, I don't believe, unless you may want to go back to the 50s and early 60s with the opening of Disneyland, has a generation had such a transformative experience with a theme park or some type of central activity. And before that, we'd have to look at the World's Fairs. So the 1980s specifically, when we talk about Walt Disney World, because of the opening of Epcot, this whole concept of Progress City, what this uh, you know content creator, what this... Uh, for his time, new media man of Walt Disney wanted to do and actually building a city that incorporated all of the ideas of what new media was at his time. So this Progress City idea, which eventually turned into the theme park of Epcot later, you know, well down the road, but audio, uh, audio animatronics, monorails, all of this technology of the future being deployed sometimes for the first time, depending on what the technology was. And if we look at what was open in the 80s, so we had the Magic Kingdom, which opened back in 1971. I know way too much about this stuff. But you have things like the Skyway. Typical theme park stuff, but it took you from a designated themed land called Tomorrowland, uh, where you had attractions like If You Had Wings, where it was, what is it? what does it feel like to fly? What's the experience of flying? And, and you know, we're talking about a time where commercial air travel for regular people was still in the process of becoming mainstream. And you had this concept of an attraction like Mission to Mars, of what would it be like, which before that had been um, Mission to the Moon back at Disneyland prior. Uh, what is it going to be like to go out into space? And then in 1982, you get Epcot opening, and you have these amazing attractions like Horizons, where you get to, with your family or whoever you're riding the ride with, Pick the experience you want. Do I want to live underwater? Do I want to live out in space? Do I want to live in this futuristic community here on Earth? Um, Communicore, which was a, a whole, ex basically an exposition at Epcot about um, uh, computers and, and what purpose they would serve in the, in the future. So, I mean, I could go on and on about the different experiences that are built in. But, you know, I still, to this day, have some of the childhood visions that I got in those times, uh, they still occur to me today. And the funny thing is how valid they are today because some of them, some of these things that that Walt Disney and, and the Walt Disney Company after he passed was trying to get across uh, to us as theme park visitors about the future, some of them are still valid today and still plausible but haven't quite been achieved. Think about self-driving cars that Google and so many other companies are working on, and, and this is something that he's sort of obsessed over about what's the perfect ideal city. You know, audio animatronics, what what are interactions with robots, AI, and, and potentially, 
you know, artificially sentient life in the future. So anyway, I mean, I could go on this forever, but it's that idea of there is something unique about what that company, the Walt Disney Company, offered at that time in the 1980s and in that format, other than movies and all that stuff, which are great as well. But they offered this real tangible World's Fair style experience that, you know, I just don't know that after the World's Fair and sort of the commoditization of theme parks, I don't know if generations now and in the future will get to have a similar experience to what we're mentioning here. Yeah, I mean, really, and, and the launch of Epcot in 82 and, and, and the, whole, the whole theme of the launch was the 21st century begins now. Um, and, and Epcot, in its, in its original state, was so much more uh, educational, I guess I want to use the term. I mean, now, don't get me wrong. Edutainment, right? Edutainment, there you go. There still is a lot of great educational things to, to be gathered from Epcot. But but some of the uh, the more, I guess, Magic Kingdom aspects have worked their way. And obviously you have, you know, you know Finding Nemo uh, and the Living Seas and things like that. And, um, you know, the uh, Imagination with Figment, Journey into Imagination with Figment has has taken on a little more cartoonish aspect than right. the uh, original setups. Uh, but but that said, there was that, it really was the glimpse into the future for what we hoped the future would be. Um, and I guess in a way because of technology and because of the advancements we've actually made, some of those things don't seem as radical. But uh, you definitely had that feeling in the 80s when, when you would walk into Epcot or when you'd walk into things like the Carousel of Progress and, and get to the last frame. Um, there, there was that feeling of you were looking into the future, uh, and it was Disney, you know, in their imagineering in some ways at its finest. Yeah, and I and I, I, listen, I don't want to belittle any anything else and say that Walt Disney World in the '80s is the only time. Like I mentioned, the World's Fairs, where a lot of um, Disney's tests um, went on of what type of ride capacity could that company handle, um, all of those things. But but it is a it is sort of the last time we have that edutainment experience um, across a wide section of the pop- global population. And, uh, you know, we now we really just rely on trade conventions, and that's become the norm. And I just don't know if that's as good for inspiring young folks, and I mean sub-millennials, people younger than millennials. I don't know if that's quite the same thing. And, uh, I, I, you know, I just, I kind of knew you'd agree with me on this one, but I was still holding my breath to uh, to make sure I wasn't way out there in left field. No, I don't think I was way out there in the field at all. It actually makes a lot of sense. To me, anyway. Uh, yeah, you know, and if it doesn't to someone else, then okay. But they're going to have their own top five list, and, and we have similarities and differences between all of them. So now we're down to number five for both of us. What's your number five? Well, the, the last one I'm going to give you, um, yeah, I, I have to throw a caveat in this. I may not actually be remembering what I think I'm remembering. Uh, and, and it'll make sense in a moment when I give you the date of this event. Uh oh, is this one also from college? No, this is way earlier. Oh, way, okay. Way, <laughs> way, way early. earlier. Uh, this would be April 12th, 1981. I think I remember, but I'm not sure. Uh, it is the initial space flight of Columbia. Huh. Now, my, my, my memory, and I'm going with a six year old memory here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, not six years ago, as in I was six years old. Um, but I have vivid memories of watching Columbia land. Now, I'm, I'm going with the assumption that it's the first 
flight of Columbia. It's, there's a very good chance it could be the second flight of Columbia. I mean, it's very possible. Uh, there's no way for me to confirm this, but obviously it was one of the first flights, if not the very first flight of Columbia. Right. It was the concept, and again, as a, as a kid who loved Star Wars and Star Trek, you know, um, this was a reusable space vehicle. This was a spaceship, a real spaceship. This was not something that got launched in, landed on the moon, or, or, or floated around for a while, and then came back, burnt up, dropped in the ocean, and, and you know, some some navy ship came by and scooped it out and, and chucked it in a museum. This was an actual spaceship that could take off, go to space, land on Earth, and then take off and go back to space again. Um, this was for for a, a sci-fi kid. This was amazing. A real spaceship. We have a real spaceship now. Uh, again, I was six years old. Um, if I, am I actually remembering the 81 flight? I don't know. Uh, but you know, at the time, it was just incredible. This this was, you know, to me one of the highlights of the 80s was, was space travel. Now, obviously, uh, I remember also uh, January 1986 in the Challenger disaster. Uh, I remember seeing that. Uh, what's bizarre, and, and again, this kind of ties into a longer memory here, but I remember shortly before that Challenger flight watching a special on, I think it was NBC, it was a Saturday afternoon special, but talking about you know the space shuttles and, and flights, because you have to remember, prior to the Challenger going up in 86, uh, the whole idea of, of Krista McCullough and, and, and a civilian, so to speak, going into space and everything else, there was a lot of hype. A lot of right. shows about space travel. And one of them showed how many manned shuttle flights were planned over the next seven years, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And it was just this increasing, they had this great graphic with little shuttles for every year that, you know, hmm. counting off the flights. And, you know, manned space flight was going to become such a boon, such an industry. And then, of course, in, in 86, after the Challenger disaster, you know, it was three years before Columbia went back up again. Um, but again, I'm, I'm getting off topic here. The memory itself is the idea that there was a reusable spacecraft and we were going to be able to do this. And as you know, I am someone who has been utterly, uh, disgusted, annoyed, many other words with, uh, with the U S abandoning the shuttle program and abandoning manned space flight. Uh, you know, I, I, again, my own personal opinion, uh, huge mistake. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of, of reusable space craft and i think it's something we should be working on because i think there's a lot of practical advantages to it but uh but again I, I, and i'm going with a memory that i believe i have from six years old i know i have the memory maybe it was seven maybe it was a second flight but uh definitely columbia and the idea of a reusable spacecraft again it, it was science fiction turned into science for for a child in the 80s you know, I'm I'm definitely with you 100% on this one. And you grew up in New York, right? Yeah. So I grew up uh, here in Florida where we record now, and uh, I'm going to make you jealous for a moment. Um, I remember being very young and multi-year period up, you know, um, a a actually after the flights had resumed after the Challenger disaster. And uh, we used to go outside of the classroom into the large... Uh, a uh, little PE field there or whatever it was, you know, all the physical education field. And the school I went to, we had a very large um, amount of land set aside for that and future expansion. And uh, we were kind of out in a really rural area. And so we used to go outside and watch the shuttles uh, launch. And um, 
again, as a Central Florida resident, almost all my life, we're talking virtually all my life, because only a few weeks of my life I haven't been, um, uh, well, you know, North Florida for a year. But uh, other than those times, I-, I had the privilege of, during the entire shuttle program, of hearing every single landing that happened here in Florida. Now, not every landing happened in Florida. Some in California, I believe they did some in Texas, and uh, I'm not really sure which airfields were uh, capable of accommodating the space shuttle, but I, uh, you know, there were um, California landings that I remember. But every single one in Florida, that double that double boom, um, you know, when I think about it, it brings back great memories. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought the shuttle up because that feeling of hearing, you know, this boom, boom, and thinking to yourself as a kid, ah, that's people coming back from, from orbit. It just, it made the Star Trek and the Star Wars so real so quick. Absolutely. Again, and again, it's one of those things where, you know, it's a generational thing, I'm sure. Um, but it's interesting enough because I have a young son and, and he's mentioned a few times how, you know, he'd like to be an astronaut, which I think all, all kids go through that phase of wanting to be an astronaut. And they but, should. Um, to keep, you know, encourage him on that. He, he, that's a great thing to uh, want to be. It just It's interesting to think that, you know, my dreams of being an astronaut involve working for the U.S. government. His dreams of being an astronaut will probably involve working for some private computer company at some point. And that's okay too. I, I have a I have a secret. I took one of my classes outside in the Orlando area. We went out into a big parking lot and we watched a SpaceX uh, rocket launch. And they kind of looked at me funny. It was a bunch of young millennials, so you know uh, the kind of the youngest part of mo- the millennial demographic. And uh, they looked at me like, "Why are we doing this?" And I explained the story of uh, getting to do that in Florida. And uh, they kind of got it then. Of wow, this this is. Um, Something to remember because space travel won't always be exactly what it is today. It will change. It will progress, and uh, and uh, hopefully it progresses in a positive way. Uh, I'm going to wrap up the last one here in very briefly, just because um, it's it's a big one. I believe in it, but it's nowhere near as impactful as as world's fairs and theme parks and space shuttle and and the internet. Um, this one's a quirky one. RCA once released something called the CED video disc and before VHS and uh, after really what's before VHS and Betamax the ability to not record stuff so in the few years before that where all the hype was coming and we knew this technology was about to hit there was something called the video disc and imagine a giant hard-shelled floppy disc I mean this thing must have been a foot across maybe more um, big set-top device. You'd plug the big disc in there. It'd take the disc out of the cartridge, right? And that was always awkward. It would actually physically take the floppy disk out of the cartridge. They were very fragile. And you could watch whatever you wanted. I remember uh, in my family, we had uh, Star Trek. We had a bunch of Disney cartoons. We had um, quite a few movies um, that were out on that format. And And, you know, I never... Being a kid that grew up with that technology, I never realized it wasn't something that was normal. And I think that's where I want why I want to end on this. Sometimes your connection with technology, no one else can really understand. Not you know the mainstream won't understand. And so if I say video disc, so many people will think laser disc, but that's so that's way down the road. It's just these weird one-offs of of you know imagine what will happen if all of these waves of holographic. Um, 
holographic devices that are coming out now, what if they don't take off? Then we'll look back kindly and say, oh, do you remember Oculus Rift? Did you ever hear of that? Did you ever use one? But if it does take off, it'll be a household name and, and Facebook will have uh, great recognition for having bought them in their early days. But that's the one I really want to end on, the RCA video disc, because what an impressive technology to be able to watch movies at home before VHS was released. And that, that just, um, that's what I watched as a kid, and uh, it stuck with me. Agreed. Uh, you know, and again, it, it, it's memories. That's what we're talking about today. Memories are personal. So obviously, uh, we invite feedback on your own memories. But again, your memories are going to be shaped by your age, your environment, uh, your financial situation in some cases. Um, you know, but again, I think the, the point to be made here is that these technological advances in our lifetime have engaged us to the point that it's created these memories that stick with us even tonight. Yeah. I, I agree. Um, so, Christopher, very quickly, about 10, 15 seconds, what, um, what do you hope to be the next big technology memory that you have? I think the ne next big technolo technology memory for me uh, is probably going to involve hologram. Uh, you know, I see a day coming when uh, I get to buy a ticket to go into a venue and watch a hologram version of a sporting event taking place at another arena or stadium. Uh, imagine, if you will, going to you know, your local uh, football stadium and being able to watch the Super Bowl played out as a hologram while it's actually going on uh, across the country at another venue. That, that I see as the future. I think hologram technology is going to uh, really radically change the, uh, the face of entertainment. I agree with that. And if the New York Giants and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers ever make it to the Super Bowl together, <laughs> then we'll both be there watching that same holographic Super Bowl. Christopher, thanks for chatting with me today. Always a pleasure. So, how did you like the show? We hope that you found it entertaining and that it made you think of your own connections with technology. Until next week, take care. <laughs>